This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. The Epistles of John The second and third epistles of John display the characteristics of a letter. They include the title of the sender, the addressees, the greetings, the personal message, and the salutations at the end. Although they lack information on place and date, these letters attributed to John are comparable in form to the epistles written by Paul or Peter. The first epistle of John, however, is different. It is devoid of names of sender and recipients, of greetings and benediction, and of places of sender, places of origin and destination. This epistle could be called a theological treatise. But this designation does not quite fit because the letter shows the personal touch of the writer from beginning to end. He tenderly addresses the recipients as dear friends or dear children and uses the personal pronouns we and I. The tone of this document definitely indicates that it is a letter, not a treatise, from a respected and revered writer to recipients who knew him well. We're first going to ask the question, who wrote the epistles? And then we look at the external evidence first, and secondly at the internal evidence. We begin with the external evidence. What do writers of the 2nd and 3rd century say about the epistles of John? Polycarp, who reportedly was a disciple of John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle, wrote a letter to the church at Philippi around the year 110. The resemblance is plain to see in these two references. The first is Philippians 7, verse 1, written by Polycarp. I quote, For everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an antichrist. And whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. End of quote. And now, 1 John 4, the verses 2 and 3. Quote, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. End of quote. Next, Papias, who was bishop of Hierapolis, near Laodicea, about six miles away from Laodicea, around the year 125, used quotations from the first epistle of John. We are told by Irenaeus, who was bishop of Lyon and Vienna in southern France, around the year 185, said that Papias was a, the hearer of John and a companion of Polycarp. We can rely, therefore, on the voices of witnesses who personally knew John. In the beginning of the second century, these two disciples of John used his first epistle and implicitly bear witness to its authenticity. If this the epistle had not originated with John, they would have been able to make this known. Near the end of the second century, Irenaeus not only quoted from the epistle, but also attributed to John, the disciple of the Lord. Next, the Muratorian Canon, which presumably originated about the year 175, states, quote, Indeed, the epistle of Jude and two of the above-mentioned John 
are accepted in the Catholic. End of quote. And what we have to do now is add a word after Catholic. It could be Catholic Church or it could be the Catholic Epistles. Because the Latin original is rather imprecise, scholars have difficulty determining the exact meaning of this saying. In the 3rd century, a number of writers frequently used John's epistle and testify that it belongs to John. They are Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, and Dionysius, the disciple of Origen. What external support is there for the 2nd and 3rd epistles of John? Due to their brevity and relatively minor importance in the context of the New Testament, we are not surprised that the evidence is somewhat meager. In fact, we stand amazed that in the providence of God, these short letters are extant and are incorporated in the canon. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, both quotes from the second epistle, verses 10 and 11, and mentions the Apostle John by name. In his discourse against the Marcosians, he writes, quote, And John, the disciple of the Lord, has intensified their condemnation when he desires us not even to address to them the salutation of good speed, for, says he, he that bids them of good speed is a partaker of their evil deeds. End of quote. At another place, he quotes verses 7 and 8 of the second epistle and attributes them to the disciple of the Lord, that is, John. In the third century, Clement of Alexandria indicates that he is familiar with the second epistle because he refers to the longer epistle of John. Another Alexandrian of that century, Dionysius, discusses the authorship of the epistles of John and says, quote, Nay, not even in the second or third extant epistles of John, although they are short, is John set forth by name. End of quote. And his contemporary origin notes that he is acquainted with John's two shorter epistles and adds, Not all say that these are genuine. Also, Eusebius, a century later, 325, puts the second and third epistles among the so-called disputed books. But toward the end of that century, the councils of Hipporagius in the year 393 and the council of Carthage, 397, acknowledged the canonicity of John's epistles. And now let's look at the internal evidence. The similarity between the Gospel of John and the Epistles is striking in verbal parallels and choice of words. First we take a few examples from John's first epistle and his Gospel. First we go to the first epistle, 1 verse 4. Quote, We write this to make our joy complete. End of quote. Now we go to the Gospel. John 16, verse 24, quote, Ask, and you, will be re and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. End of quote. One more example. This comes from the first epistle, chapter 2, verse 11, quote, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. End of quote. Now the parallel in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 35. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. End of quote. And now the last example, from the first epistle, 3, verse 23. Quote, and this is his command, to love one another as he commanded us. End of quote. The parallel is found in the Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34. Quote, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
End of quote. The vocabulary in both the epistle and the gospel of John shows unmistakable similarity. Both books emphasize the same themes, love, light, truth, witness, and sonship. The expression, one and only son, occurs in John 1 verse 14, verse 18, 3 verse 16, and also in 1 John 4 verse 9. The Greek word paraclete appears in John 14 verse 16, verse 26, 15 verse 26, 17 verse 7, and in 1 John 2 verse 1. Both the epistle and the gospel reveal the literary use of contrast, life and death, light and darkness, truth and the lie, love and hate. The similarity in style and thought is striking indeed. Moreover, the three epistles of John appear interrelated in thought and verbal expression. Cross-references abound among the three epistles and the gospel. So the thought that the books have a common author becomes prominent. This thought stands out still more when we, when we consider the greeting of the elder in the second and third epistles. Notice the ending of, first, of second John, verse 1. <clears throat> Not the ending, but the beginning. The beginning of Second John, verse 1. Quote, The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And note the beginning of Third John, verse 1. The elder to my dear friend Gaius whom I love in the truth. Look also at the ending. Second John, 12. Quote, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face. End of quote. And see the parallel in 3 John verses 13 and 14. Quote, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. End of quote. Since the length and format of these two epistles are the same, common authorship seems undeniable. Furthermore, the writer of the epistles speaks not merely to a local church, but speaks to the church at large. He speaks as an elder. In his address, he refers to himself as the elder. John indicates that his influence extends beyond local boundaries and is therefore universal. In short, he writes with apostolic authority. Now let's look at common authorship. Did one author write the three epistles? If we approach the second and third epistles first, we can assume that because of form, word choice, and style, the same author must most likely wrote both epistles, the three epistles. In fact, the, sim the similarities in these two epistles strongly suggest that the letters come from the hand of one writer. Next, if the elder composed second and third John, both, excuse me, Next, if the elder composed 2nd and 3rd John, could the first epistle have come from his pen as well? In spite of the brevity of the 2nd and 3rd epistles, the verbal resemblances between them and 1st John and the Gospel are clearly recognizable. Besides similarities, however, differences are also prominent. The writer identifies himself in the last two epistles, but not in the first epistle. The author mentions the addressees of 2nd and 3rd John, 
although they are not known to us. He does not mention the recipients of his first epistle, even though he tenderly addresses them as my dear children. The differences are of minor importance, so common authorship of the Johannine epistles is probable. In fact, most scholars believe that one person wrote all three epistles. Now let's look at the difficulties. If the writer of the second and third epistles is no one else than the Apostle John, why does he refer to himself as the elder? He would have followed the custom of Paul and Peter if he had introduced himself as, quote, John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, end of quote. Peter in his first epistle calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ and appeals to the elders as a fellow elder, 5 verse 1. Although the context differs in respect to the first epistle of Peter and the second and third epistles of John, the fact remains that an apostle can be an elder. The term elder in these epistles is virtually equivalent to the expression apostle. Many scholars, however, are not ready to equate the term elder and apostle with reference to the epistles of John. They do not think it likely at all that the writer of the second and third John is the apostle John, the son of Zebedee. In regard to third John, for instance, C.H. Dodd questions the author's apostolic authority. He asks, quote, Can we doubt that if he had possessed the apostolic dignity, he would have flung out a defiant John, apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and reduced Diotrephus to silence? End of quote. However, a well-known remark made by Papius, Papias in the first part of the second century is the crux of the issue. This remark by Papias, written in one of the five books of his Interpretation of the Oracles of God, is this. Only fragments of these books have been preserved. They have been recorded by the 4th century historian Eusebius. And now here is his remark, quote, And I shall not hesitate to append to the interpretations all that I ever learned from the presbyters and remember well, for of their truth I am confident, that if ever any one came who had followed the presbyters, I inquired into the words of the presbyters what Andrew or Peter or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any other of the Lord's disciples had said, and what Aristion and the presbyter John, the Lord's disciples, were saying. For I, I did not suppose that information from books would help me so much as the word of a living and surviving voice. End of quote. In this lengthy quotation, Papias equates the terms presbyters and disciples. Note that the term presbyter occurs three times and refers to Jesus' disciples. That is, the names of the disciples of Jesus stand in apposition to and are an explanation of the words presbyters. Papias, accordingly, informs the readers that he has gained information about the Lord directly from his disciples. He indicates that there were stages in the collection of information. He uses the past tense when he writes, quote, I inquired into the words of the presbyters what Andrew or Peter or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any other of the Lord's disciples had said. End of quote. Then when most of them had passed away, he inquired into, quote, what Arician and the presbyter John, the Lord's disciples, were 
saying, end of quote. We know very little about Aristion, but we have a remark about the end of John's life. According to Irenaeus, the Apostle John lived until the times of Emperor Trajan. Trajan was emperor from the year 98 to 117. We conclude then that the Apostle John was the only disciple of the Lord still alive at the end of the first century. Also, we understand Papias' remark that he sought information from a living and surviving voice rather than from the books. Is Papias referring to one person by the name of John or to two individuals? Does he call John a disciple and an elder or is he introducing the Apostle John and another John known as John the Elder? Eusebius comments on Papias' ambiguity. Quote, it is worth noting here that, the twice, that he twice counts the name of John and reckons the first John with Peter and James and Matthew and the other apostles, clearly meaning the evangelist, but by changing his statement places the second with the others outside the number of the apostles, putting a Christian before him and clearly calling him a presbyter. This confirms the truth of the story of those who had said that there were two of the same name in Asia and that there are two tombs at Ephesus, both still called John's. End of quote. In that same context, Eusebius calls Papias a man of very little intelligence and makes this judgment on the basis of Papias' millennial views. Eusebius disagrees with Papias' view of an earthly millennium in which Christ reigns as king. He is of the opinion that Papias received these notions by perverse reading of the apostolic accounts. We are unable to determine the level of intelligence of Papias because his books are no longer extant. But we dare say that Eusebius is unusually harsh in judging Papias' intellectual capabilities in the light of doctrinal issues. If we examine the life of John, we see that he filled the role of disciple, apostle, and elder. For three years, John had been a disciple of Jesus. After Jesus' ascension, he served as one of the twelve apostles. And in the church he became known as the elder. Because John outlived all the other apostles, he is mentioned twice. Papias lists him among Jesus' disciples whose voices were silenced by death. And he mentions John with Aristian, who was not a disciple, as a surviving voice that still witnesses for Jesus. We conclude then, that although the wording of Papias is ambiguous, the intent is to stress that John, the disciple of the Lord and elder in the church, is the unique surviving witness for the Lord. Is there any evidence for a person known as the elder John who was a contemporary of and successor to John? In the 3rd century, Dionysius of Alexandria had heard that there were two tombs of John in Ephesus. Writing about John Mark, who left the company of Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey, he says, quote, But I think there was a certain other John among those who were in Asia, since it is said both that there were two tombs at Ephesus, and that each of the two is said to be of John. End of quote. Dionysius ascribes the gospel and the epistles to John, the apostle, but he thinks that revelation was composed by some other person with the name John. He shows that he has difficulties understanding revelation and therefore does not believe that John, the son of Zebedee, wrote it. 
Also, Eusebius wants nothing to do with millennial views taken from Revelation. He sees in the wording of one of Papia's fragments the possibility of ascribing the book of Revelation to another person known as John and thus mentions the existence of the Apostle John and the Presbyter John. However, nothing is known about the so-called Presbyter John. For even Polycrates, who was a bishop at Ephesus near the end of the second century, is silent on this matter. In a letter addressed to a certain victor and the church at Rome, he mentions that John, quote, who lay on the breasts of the Lord, quote, and, unquote, was buried in Ephesus. But he fails to provide any information about the second tomb for a person known as the Presbyter John. We hesitate, therefore, to make a distinction known uh, distinction between the Apostle John and the Presbyter John as long as the evidence is insufficient to substantiate a decided difference. Moreover, arguments that attempt to make adherence to common authorship for all three Johannine epistles impossible are not compelling. In fact, scholars who espouse the view that John the son of Zebedee wrote the epistles can gain support from writers in the early Christian church. Some of these writers were disciples of John. And now let's have a look at the objections to Johannine authorship. A number of scholars are not at all convinced that the Apostle John is the writer of the Gospel and the Epistles. They envision that John was surrounded by a group of disciples who wrote in behalf of the Apostle. A school of writers, they claim, is responsible for the Johannine literature. Many of these writers were engaged in composing different parts of this literature. According to these scholars, writers in this school use the same vocabulary, diction, and style. Furthermore, the writers expressed a common theology so that in respect to similarities and differences, all their writings bore the telltale marks of belonging to the same school of thought, namely, the Johannine school. The term Johannine school refers to the community in which the literature attributed to John, especially the Gospel and the Epistles, was written, and in this school the Apostle John functioned as leader so that the individual writers actually composed the books in his name. This hypothesis, however, faces some objections. First, groups of writers usually compose collections of opinions on a given topic and write them in, form, in the form of short essays. They put these essays together in one book. We call such a book a symposium. But the Gospel and the epistles of John do not appear to be a collection of opinions that are held together by a common theme. Instead, the gospel, and to a great extent the first epistle of John, reveals progress and development, eyewitness reports, and a personal detail that focus, focuses attention on one author. Next, Proponents of the Johannine school hypothesis have to demonstrate that disciples of the Apostle John composed their writings that eventually became known as the Gospel and the Epistles of John. That is, they have to show that John could not have written the Gospel and the Epistles and that these documents had to come from the hand of his disciples. But their hypothesis merely assumes that not John but his followers wrote. For scholars who have not yet adopted this point of view, but who believe that John, the son of Zebedee, <coughs> is the writer of the Johannine literature, a mere assumption can hardly be called 
convincing evidence. And now let us look at the differences. C.H. Dodd maintains that differences between the Gospel of John and the first epistle are pronounced. These differences are, first of all, linguistic. They include style, the occurrence of certain verbs, a lack of some prepositions and particles, a simple vocabulary, and a limited use of grammatical idiom in the first epistle. Besides, the Johannine writings displayed differences in religious background. For example, whereas the Gospel has many quotations from the Old Testament, <clears throat> the epistle has none. Semitisms that are numerous in the fourth gospel are conspicuous by their absence in John's epistle. And last, theological emphases are different in the gospel and in the first epistle. These differences pertain to eschatology, which in the epistle diverges from its presentation in the gospel, interpretation of the death of Christ, which the writer of the epistle does in a form that hardly progresses beyond the elementary preaching of the gospel message, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is prominent in the gospel but absent from the first epistle. Dodd's linguistic arguments lost ground when a detailed study by W.G. Wilson on the linguistic evidence revealed that in respect of important words, there is less variation between the fourth gospel and first John than exists between first Corinthians and Philippians. It is extremely difficult to maintain that two separate writings of a particular author must reveal the same linguistic features. It is also difficult to, to determine whether or not Two different writings which possess similar linguistic features come from the hand of more than one author. Especially when the writer addresses two different audiences or pursues different purposes, variations in vocabulary and idioms are unavoidable. Thus, in another study, W. F. Howard points out that the reason for linguistic divergencies may be found partly in the difference of subject matter. In the class of writing, in the manner of composition and of dictation, partly also in external events, and their effect upon the mind of the Christian pastor or leader and upon the needs of the church. Also, similarities in the language and thought of the gospel and epistles provide sufficient evidence to indicate common authorship. Dodd's differences pertaining to religious background are not consequential. Many scholars explain these differences in the light of the respective audiences of the gospel and the epistles. The recipients of the epistles seem to have been Gentiles whose familiarity with Old Testament citations diverged from that of Jewish readers who read the gospel. Last, Dodd's theological emphases appear to have been overstated. For instance, although the expression Antichrist appears three times in the first epistle, 2 verse 18, 22, and 4 verse 3, but never in the gospel, a similar Johannine term, prince of the world, of this world, occurs in John 12, 31, 14, verse 30, and 16, verse 11. The interpretation of the death of Christ is expressed in the gospel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 1, verse 29. And in 1 John as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2.2. 2. Finally, even though the Holy Spirit in person and work is prominent in the gospel, the first epistle is not devoid of direct and indirect references to the Spirit. You find that in 2.20, 
and 2.27, 4 verse 4 and 5 verse 8. In view of the evidence presented, be it in cursory form, the conclusion may be drawn that there hardly exists adequate reason to suppose another author for 1 John than for John. And now the personal references. The use of the first person plural in the opening verse of 1 John is striking. Quote, that which, was, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our, ha- our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. 1 verse 1. End of quote. In the succeeding verses, verses 2, 3, and 4, the writer continues to use the first person plural noun, pronoun, we, to distinguish himself from his readers. When he resorts to using that pronoun in subsequent verses, he uses it comprehensively to include himself with the readers. See, for example, the verse frequently used in worship services. Quote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. End of quote. 1 verse 9. In the introductory verses, <coughs> John tells, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> John tells his readers that he is an eyewitness who saw Jesus, heard his voice, and touched him with his hands. His use of the words we, us, and our must be understood ex- exclusively. That is, he is communicating to his readers that he and his fellow disciples had the unique experience of seeing and hearing Jesus, but that the readers did not have this opportunity. Instead, they received the teachings of Jesus from one of their surviving disciples. What is the precise meaning of the pronoun we in chapter 1, the first four verses? Here are a few interpretations. Number one, we is equivalent to I, because the writer employs the plural to indicate his authority in the church. He is the Apostle John, who speaks with indisputable authority. But John's words are not dictatorial and haughty. In his writings, he makes no mention of his apostolic office. Number two, The author may use the pronoun we as an editorial we. That is, he tries to avoid calling attention to himself alone and therefore resorts to the general we. But the so-called editorial we is too vague to be applicable here. Number three. The pronoun we refers to a group of persons who have had the same experiences. They are the disciples of Jesus who have been with the Lord Jesus, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up. You find it in Acts 1.22. These persons are witnesses of Jesus' resurrection and form the distinct group that constitutes the circle of the twelve apostles. John, then, is the last survivor of those who have heard and seen the Lord, the sole representative of his disciples speaking in their name. Number four. Some scholars understand the we, in verses one through four, to include the writer and the whole church. The writer, says Dodd, speaks not exclusively for himself or for a restricted group, but for the whole church to which the apostolic witness belongs and he addresses the you who have no knowledge of the Father and the Son. But we demur. The recipients of the letter whom the author addresses repeatedly as dear children are not unbelievers. They are the children of God. 3 verse 1 If the recipients are part of the church and part of the group Dodd mentions, then 1 verse 3 means that this group 
quote, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, unquote, is addressing itself. Also, the addressees have not seen and heard Jesus and certainly have not touched him with their hands. Donald Burdick concludes, quote, It is much easier to accept the more natural interpretation which sees the author as an eyewitness than to adopt Dodd's unnatural interpretation in order to avoid the eyewitness claim. End of quote. Number five. Raymond Brown understands the we in the introduction of 1 John in relation to the so-called Joannine school. They are the Joannine writers, quote, the tradition bearers and interpreters who stand in, the, in a special relationship to the beloved disciple in their attempt to preserve his witness, end of quote. Brown is fully aware of the objection that Joannine writers could not say that they had touched Jesus with their own hands, 1 verse 1. He tries to remove the objection by suggesting that these people, quote, participated in the sensation only vicariously, end of quote. The reader who accepts Apostolic authorship, however, has no difficulties, especially in the light of the testimony of eyewitnesses. For instance, Peter writes, quote, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. End of quote. Second Peter one sixteen. Only Jesus' original disciples can say and write that they touched him with their hands, as John states in the introductory verses of his first epistle. Consequently, we favor the third interpretation, namely, <clears throat> that it is more natural to accept John as the writer of this epistle than to come with an unnatural interpretation trying to avoid the eyewitness claim. J. R. W. Stott succinctly summarizes the explanation of the pronoun we in the prologue of 1 John 1 verses 1 through 4. Quote, the first person plural is used not only of the verbs describing the historical experience, but also of the verbs describing the proclamation of it. The persons who make the announcement are the persons who had the experience. It is they whose eyes have, been, have seen, ears heard, and hands handled, whose mouths are opened to speak. End of quote. Now we take up the recipients of the epistles. The writer reveals himself as a man who speaks with authority and whose voice is revered. As a, as a distinguished leader in the church, he addresses the readers without identifying himself in the first epistle. That is, the re recipients of this first epistle have no need to ask who sent it. They know because the writer appears to have been a long-time resident in their area. He has taught and preached in their churches. The author addresses his readers with words of tender love. The address, my dear children, or dear children, occurs numerous times and indicates that the writer is advanced in age. As a father in the church, he considers his readers to be his spiritual offspring. He affectionately calls them dear friends. All the translations render this term as beloved. The author writes to the recipients in a personal manner by using the first person pronoun I repeatedly throughout the first, the first second and third epistles. The bond between writer and readers 
is intimate and strong. They know one another, and detailed introductions are not needed. Even though the author and the recipients were fully acquainted, the modern reader can only guess about the identity of these people when he carefully reads the internal evidence. The writer reveals himself indirectly and at the same time provides a number of details about the readers. Consequently, we rely on the written text to gain insight into the problems the author and his readers faced. Apart from the tone of these letters, which is marked by the virtues of love and truth, the writer nowhere leaves the impression that he is soft and weak. On the contrary, he is unafraid to use the word liar. For example, 1 verse 10 and 2 verse 4 and 2 verse 22. He labels, labels his opponents antichrist in 1 John 2:18 and 22, and also in 4 verse 3, and last in 2 John verse 7. And he makes a clear distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. According to the writer, the false prophets possess the spirit of falsehood. Besides, the person who does not bring the teaching of Christ performs a wicked work, 2 John 10 and 11. The author speaks with absolute authority when he commands his readers not to love the world, to remain in Christ, to believe in the name of Jesus, to love one another, to walk in love, not to invite false teachers to, their, to teach in their homes and to imitate that which is good. We are able to glean enough information from the three epistles to ascertain that the writer is an eyewitness and hearer of Jesus, a proclaimer of the word who can speak with authority about the beginning and functions as the elder in the midst of the churches. When the writer identifies himself as the elder, he seems to have nothing more in mind than a synonym for the word apostle. This eminent writer, because of his influence and acclaim, has no need to identify himself. He is known as John, the son of Zebedee. If the author implicitly reveals himself in his letters, does he provide information about the identity of his readers? In his second and third epistles, he spells out the address. Second John is sent to the chosen lady and her children, and third John to his fr dear friend Gaius. In first John, he fails to identify the readers. Indirectly, however, he provides numerous clues about their identity. So first, let us look at the recipients of 1 John. The readers of the first epistle were generally not recent converts, but had been Christians for some time. The writer addresses fathers and young men, many of whom had heard the gospel from the beginning. They know the teachings of Christ, obey his command, and confess his name. They are fully aware of the pernicious attacks of the devil, who appears to them in the form of the Antichrist, false prophets, and liars. Direct references to the Old Testament are few. The author mentions Cain by name, and describes him as the one who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. 3 verse 12 Even allusions to the teachings of the Old Testament are infrequent. The words, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 verse 8 Echo Proverbs 28, 13 He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them, finds mercy. God is described as faithful and just. This phrase is a repetition and summary of the line from the Song of Moses, quote, A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he, end of quote. 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. And the words, there is nothing in him to make him stumble, relate to Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Last, the observation, quote, and his commandments are not burdensome, end of quote, 5 verse 3, resembles the instruction of Moses, quote, Now that I am, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you and beyond your reach. End of quote. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. The direct reference and the, and the allusions to the Old Testament provide a description of the author, not of the readers. They indicate that the author's mind was conditioned by Jewish teaching. This cannot be said of the readers. The absence of Old Testament quotations leaves the impression that his readers were of Gentile origin, for then the scriptures of the Old Testament were relatively new. Tradition holds that John wrote his epistles during his ministry in Ephesus and that his first epistle was addressed to a church or group of churches whom the author knew well. Succeeding Paul and Timothy, John was a pastor in Ephesus until his death in about the year 98. From Ephesus he wrote his epistles, presumably to Gentile audiences rather than to readers who were Jewish Christians. And now let's look at the recipients of Second John. The elder sends his letter to the chosen lady and her children. Verse 1. He greatly rejoices in the knowledge that some of the children of this elect lady are walking in the truth. Verse 4. He uses the plural pronoun you when he tells them that he has much to write them, that he hopes to visit them soon. Verse 12. And last, he concludes that his second epistle by conveying the greetings of the... <coughs> pardon me. And last, he concludes his second epistle by conveying the greetings of the children of the lady's chosen sister. Verse 13. Some commentators take the words to the chosen lady and her children literally and understand them either as the chosen lady, or a chosen lady. Others even transliterate the Greek words and present them as given names. Electa, the lady, or the chosen Kyria, or Electa Kyria. However, the evidence to prove common usage of these transliterated Greek names in Greek literature is nil. Therefore, only the two translations, the chosen lady and a chosen lady, are valid. Granted that we are able to understand the address literally, a chosen lady and a children, we can also take the words to refer to a local church. Then the phrase, and her children, designates the members of the church. Also, the last verse in the letter, quote, the children of your chosen sisters send their greetings, end of quote, re represents another way of saying that the members of the sister church convey their greetings. Note that the children send their greetings, not their mother. If we take the wording literally, we have to conclude that the sister of the chosen lady is no longer living. By contrast, if we understand the expression chosen lady to mean the church, we have an acceptable explanation. The elder undoubtedly is a member of this particular church. Furthermore, the changes from the singular to the plural, the singular in verses 4, 5, and 12, over against the plural in verses 6, 8, 10, and 13, make it more likely that the reference is to the church rather than to the individual person. I hasten to add that these changes are not always noticeable in translation. Because of the use of the plural you, the writer appears to address not a single family, but an entire community.
In addition, the apostles Peter and Paul personify the church with a feminine name. For example, in his first epistle, Peter writes, quote, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. End of quote. 1 Peter 5.13 He evidently means to say, The church in Rome greets you. And Paul calls the church the virgin or the bride of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11.2. In conclusion then, the feminine identification in 2 John for a particular congregation harmonizes with this practice elsewhere. We simply cannot determine where the recipients of 2 John lived. In view of John's lengthy ministry in Ephesus, we surmise that he addressed his letter to a particular church well known to him and located in the western part of Asia Minor. And now, the <clears throat> recipients of the third epistle. The elder writes a personal letter to his friend Gaius and other friends. We know virtually nothing about Gaius except by way of information the writer provides in his third letter. The name itself occurs five times in the New Testament. In Acts 19.29, 20 verse, 40, verse 4, Romans 16.23, and 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14, and last, 3 John 1. Whether Gaius is one of those mentioned by Luke in Acts or by Paul in his epistles is difficult to say. Gaius, the dear friend of the elder, is a diligent worker in the church. Verse 3. He has cared for traveling missionaries who needed food and lodging. Verse 8. And he has had to endure malicious slander from Diotrephus. Verse 10. John mentions that he has written an earlier letter to Diotrephus, who has refused to respond to his content. Although John does not address his third epistle directly to this malcontent, but to Gaius, he nevertheless writes that he is coming for a visit to call attention to what Diotrephus is doing. The elder refers to Demetrius last of all. This person is the opposite of Diotrephus in Christian conduct. He receives praise and commendation, and in the case of Gaius, we know next to nothing about Demetrius. Any effort to link him with Demetrius the silversmith in Acts 19 verse 24, or to Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, whose name may be abbreviated in the form of Demetrius, excuse me, whose name may be an abbreviated form of Demetrius, is futile. We cannot ascertain whether Gaius, Diotrephus, and Demetrius, where they resided. Their place of residence was within traveling distance from Ephesus. So John, in his old age, was able to visit them. Perhaps all we can say is that these people lived in Asia Minor. And now we ask the question, why were the epistles written? And here are the answers. First we look at heresies. We already are able to detect problems in the churches from a cursory reading of the epistle. For instance, we read that the Antichrist is coming and that even now many Antichrists have come. And who are they? John writes, quote, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going forth showed that none of them belonged to us. End of quote. 2 verse 19. And the author warns the readers not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. For verse 1. From these passages we learn first that the Antichrists were at one time members of the church who left on their own accord. 
And second, they departed for doctrinal reasons and appeared subsequently as false prophets who were trying to lead the members of the church astray. 2 verse 26 and 2 John 7. And last, we learn that the church faces direct opposition from those who formerly belonged to the Christian community. These opponents now teach doctrines that are at variance with the Christian faith. To strengthen the members of the church and to warn them against false teachings, the author composed his epistles. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.